My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey in the Word of God through the book of Matthew. And today we are looking at Matthew chapter 18. And I want to read to you just an interesting introduction to Matthew 18 because it's a very unique chapter. And uh, this is an introduction written by David Guzik. Among the separatist community at Qumran, those who kept the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is where they were later discovered uh, in the 20th century, there was a manual of discipline. Some people think that Matthew 18 is an early church version of a manual of the disciple. Yet there is a great difference between Matthew 18 and what the Essenes of Qumran had. Their manual of disciple dealt with many specific rules. Here Jesus deals with the principles and attitudes that should mark his people as they get along with each other. Uh, And so that's what I want us to go into Matthew chapter 18 with. Let's start at verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You can just imagine the disciples. Here they go again. They're just like immature little kids having this conversation amongst themselves. They've already had it before they come to Jesus. They're already talking about it. Always concerned about the concept of greatness and who's the greatest one. Oh, I think it's Peter. I think it's James. I think it's John. No, it's got to be me because I did this. Uh, you can imagine them deciding amongst themselves. Listen, let's just go and ask Jesus. Well, you know, we, we can't seem to settle it. Let's go and ask him. Let's let, you know. They wanted to know who would hold the highest position in the kingdom of heaven, in the administration that Jesus was going to set. And John Trapp said they dreamt of a distribution of honors and offices of worldly, like a worldly monarchy, like the kingdoms of this earth. But it wasn't. That's what it wasn't about that. Uh, but this their very question. Now, Jesus does then something really remarkable here in verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, now this is amazing. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, so two steps converted and then as become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as his little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus could have answered that question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and said, well, obviously me. But he didn't. He drew their attention to his nature. What was he like? And so what does he do to to point that out? He gets a little child. Now think about the amazing part of this, is that there's a small child. Jesus calls him and the child comes. This child wasn't scared of him. The child knew that, that Jesus was a safe person to come to. So what does that say about Jesus? Small children were not scared of Jesus. They came to him. I think that says a lot about who Jesus was. So Jesus says, unless you are converted and become as little children, you'll be no, by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, which I'm sure was a massive disappointment of an answer to the disciples because children in that day were regarded as just property more than they were people. Uh, they were to be seen, not heard, Uh, And Jesus said that we have to take this kind of humble place to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
what was Jesus really about to tell them? He was going to tell them what it means to be like a little child, which means becoming like Jesus, who Jesus was. Not that Jesus was a little child in you know, meekness, but in humility. Uh, R.T. France, a child was a person of no importance in Jewish society, subject to the authority of his elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, one to be looked after, not one to be looked up to. Think, think about this. Children, you, nobody's threatened by a child in a dark alley. You don't walk through a dark alley and see a four-year-old and all of a sudden freak out. Uh, and that's think about that. That Jesus is is is, is painting a picture here uh, of somebody who's not tough and rough and intimidating. If you like that, you're not like one of these children. That's not you're not like me. Jesus wasn't like that. And Jesus here is is holding up a child. He's put this child in the midst of them. And D.A. Carson says, the child was held up as an ideal, not of innocence, purity or faith, but of humility and of no concern for social status. Jesus knew that we must be converted to be like little children. It's not in our nature to want to be humble or to take a low place. So Jesus says, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus now addresses the issue of greatness. When we most fulfill the humble place of a child that a child had in the culture of the time of Jesus, then we are on our way to greatness in the kingdom of God. R.T. France humbles himself, does not refer to a phony false modesty, but the acceptance of an inferior position as Jesus did in Philippians 2, where the same phrase is also used. The the the, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the imitation of humility. It's not trying to give off an impression of humility. It's the reality of humility. Uh, one man, of course, was the greatest and will be the greatest in the kingdom. That, that is Jesus Christ, which means that Jesus himself was as humble as a little child. He wasn't concerned about his own status. He didn't have to be the center of attention. He couldn't deceive anybody. He didn't have an intimidating presence. This is how Jesus is, uh, starts answering the disciples' question. So then he goes on in verse 5. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Well, what, a, what a stark turn that Jesus just took then. Uh, since the nature of Jesus is like one of these little children, how we treat those who are humble like children shows what we think of the nature of Jesus. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, the essential fact in the transformation Christ works is that he changes the great ones into little children. It's too easy to despise humble people. Uh, you can think they're losers or, or, oh, they'll never make it. They don't have that competitive edge, that aggressive urge to get ahead. But when we despise humble people, we despise Jesus. So we have to be very careful. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. 
So Jesus is not talking just about little ones like little children. He's talking about people who have given their lives to him. They've accepted his free gift of salvation. And now they've become humble in their, in their status. And they're okay with that. Anybody who causes those people to sin, Jesus takes it seriously when one of his little ones is led into sin. And it means people who have humbled themselves as children in the manner that Jesus described. David Guzik, it is a wicked thing to sin. It's far greater evil to lead others into sin. But leading one of Jesus' little ones into sin is far worse because you then initiate someone into an instance or a pattern of sin that corrupts whatever innocence they had. And it would be better for that person if a millstone were hung around their neck, they were drowned in the depth of the sea. What a severe punishment that Jesus just painted. You, you got a massive stone around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. You are not coming back up. Now, when you go to Capernaum, if you come to Capernaum with me, you can see there it's right on the Sea of Galilee, literally like right on the sea. And there's a millstone there that you can see. And you can imagine Jesus teaching this story. And he says, look over there. See, there's a be better for a millstone. That millstone was thrown around the neck and thrown into the sea over there. People will be like, oh, well, I mean, what an amazing visual uh, for Jesus to, to talk about. So then he goes on and he says in verse 7, Woe to the world because of offences. For offences must come, but woe to that man by whom the offence comes. So Jesus is now moving on here in, in chapter 18. And he talks about two woes. There's two woes in this verse. The first woe is a cry of pity for a world in danger of offences. And the second woe is a warning to the one who brings or introduces evil to other people. We live in a fallen world. It's inevitable that people are going to sin against us. They're going to hurt us. Offences are going to come. But the person who brings the offence is guilty before God. Always remember that, which teaches us that we can let go of the anger and the bitterness for what people have done against us. God promises to deal with those people by whom the offence comes. It's very important for all those who have been deeply hurt by others to understand that if God promises to deal with those who offend his own, then he's going to defend and protect his own. Jesus, in Jesus Christ, no other person can ruin our lives. They might bring offense into our life and God will deal with them. But God's never going to forsake us in time or eternity. Verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Here Jesus talks about hell. Hell is real. Anybody tells you hell's not real, they're ignoring the words of Jesus. Hell is a real place and it's not a fun place and it's not a place that anybody ever wants to spend eternity. And Jesus here uses hell to allow us to understand why we need to understand this passage. Some people only keep from sinning if it's convenient to not sin. 
And Jesus warns us that we have to be willing to sacrifice in order to fight against sin. Why? Because you don't want to face the wrath and the judgment of God. Jesus paid the price on the cross so we wouldn't have to do that. And it's better to sacrifice in the battle against sin now than it is to face the punishment of eternal hellfire later. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now, Jesus, I don't believe for a second he's talking about actually literally cutting off your own hand and plucking out your eye. And I'll tell you why I don't think that he was talking about it. He was talking about an attitude, okay? Why? Because firstly, he doesn't want you to harm yourself. Secondly, there's no amount of bodily mutilation that you could perform that would stop you sinning. You cut one hand off, your other hand will sin. One leg, the other leg will sin. One eye, the other eye will sin. Okay, now you've got no eyes, no arms, no legs. You can still sin in your heart and you can still sin in your mind. What are you going to do? Cut your heart and mind out? You can't do it, you see? It doesn't work. God calls us to a far more radical transformation than any sort of body of bodily mutilation can address. So what do we observe from this passage in Matthew chapter 18? I think the first thing is be humble and don't cause others to stumble. It's a good thing to remember. It's not okay just to be saved and then not become like a little child. Part of becoming a disciple, a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ, is the humility of a child. Which is also why we're not meant to cause offence to others. But if other people do offend us, understand that God is the judge. God's got it. He's going to take care of that. And then when it comes to sin in our life, which these last two verses are talking about, repetitive sin, sin where we just know that we just we keep doing it over, oh, I keep trying, I can't stop. It's probably because you haven't made the sacrifice you need to make to get that sin out of your life. So what sacrifice do you need to make? And you need to ask God the question and then listen to the, the, the Holy Spirit and follow and act on the prompts because there's some sacrifices you need to make. There are some things in your life you need to cut out of your life. It's an attitude of cutting those things off and cutting them out. It's an attitude of that that allows that uh, repetitive sin to be broken, that cycle to be broken. So I'm praying that as you and I pray this prayer today, that God will help us understand all of this. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us a position where we can come to you as little children and we can become like little children in humility. And I pray that, Father, as we are humbled in our attitudes as little children, that we would understand that there is no room for repetitive sin in our life. And God, I pray that you would just convict us of whatever things we need to cut out. What do we need to cut out in order to not allow this sin to continue in our lives? Lord, let us not be condemned. I pray there be nobody condemned today, but just convicted of what it is that they need to change with an understanding. 
God, that you can give them the power to do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.